where to start? Are you looking to grow your current business? Women's Initiative in San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988. To attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business, or for more information, please contact Sofia Campos at 415-641-3465. That's 415-641-3465. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Once again, Decoder Ring Theater presents another page from the casebook of that master of mystery, that sultan of sleuthing, Martin Bracknell's immortal detective, Black Jack Justice, starring Christopher Mott as Jack and Andrea Lyons as Trixie Dixon, girl detective. The name's Justice. Jack Justice. In my line of work, a man is different things to different people. To the pencil pushers down at City Hall, I'm a licensed private investigator, with a little tin shield to prove it. To the folks who stumble through my door, I'm a gumshoe, a Seamus, a private dick. Whatever they like, it's their nickel. I'm here to solve their problems, get them out of a jam, or confirm their worst fears. Some want the brains, some want the brawn. Me? I want the green, so I make both available. If the job gets done and your nose is close to its original shape, you call it a good day's work. You try and give the client what they want. But sometimes it ain't easy to tell what that is. Some want the savior, some want the sap. Some can't seem to make up their minds. This here's the story of one of those times. It was 8.15 in the morning when the door opened. If Trixie was surprised to see me at my desk, she didn't give me the satisfaction of showing it. She closed the office door, the glass pane that bore the words, Jack Justice Investigations, rattling softly behind her. Good morning, sunshine. Getting an early start? Something like that. Can't imagine why, since we don't have a case. Just catching up on some paperwork. Paperwork. Right. The name's Dixon. Trixie Dixon, girl detective. There are lots of ways to tell if a man is lying, but the simplest is to check if his lips are moving. Blackjack isn't exactly a morning person, never has been. So on those rare occasions when he was behind his desk when I walked through the door, I knew he'd been there all night. I knew it from long habit, and if I didn't, I'd have known it from the aroma of stale whiskey and black coffee that a clean shirt and a splash of water in the face did nothing to dispel. Jack wasn't big on inactivity. When things got quiet, he'd crawl inside his old files and dust off one that got away. There weren't many of them, but they gnawed away at him and he kept the wounds open. I almost admired him for it, but I'd never let him know that. Let me guess, the Worthington Pearls. Nah. The Moretti poisoning. The Moretti poisoning, Jack. I don't want to hear it. Stanley Moretti was guilty, Jack. Says you. Says me. Says the cops. Says the prosecutor. Says the judge and the jury. Swell. And I say there's something that never sat right about it. You're wasting your time. It's my time to waste, ain't it? Sure, sure. I'm sure Stanley Moretti be awful glad you're still on the case. If they hadn't hung him four years ago, that is. He was a client. Better a dead client than no client, that it? Somebody up there must like me a lot better than it seems. Because at that moment, Trixie's banter was cut mercifully short by a frail at the door. She wasn't that much to look at. About five foot four, long brown hair tucked away under a small cap. Her coat was older and too thin for the damp November wind. There was nothing much to notice about her at all, except for the eyes. They were big and brown, soft and doe-like, and they peeped out from underneath the brim of her cap, pleading with a breathless urgency. The kind of eyes that whispered, please help me, without her saying a word. The kind of eyes that made a sap out of me more than once. She stood there a moment, her back to the door. I looked at Trixie. She looked at me. Her hat and coat were out of season and out of style, but they've been awfully fashionable not long ago. 
She might have fallen on hard times, but my money said no. There was too much pride in the way she held her head, the way she met Jack's leering gaze. And the gloves were too new. If this wasn't a society girl trying to blend in, she was doing a heck of a routine. Whoever our guest was, she wasn't anxious to advertise. I'm, I'm sorry to intrude. I'm looking for Mr. Jack Justice. You found him. This is my associate, Miss Dixon. Trixie, please. Very glad to meet you. Why don't you sit down, Miss... Yes, thank you. I'm afraid the coffee is neither very good nor very fresh, but it would certainly help to warm you up. Would you care for a cup, Miss... No, thank you. No coffee. Well, it doesn't take much of a detective to figure out you'd rather leave names out of this, at least until we've heard your story. Is that so? Thank you. Yes. Why don't you begin at the beginning? I hope I can rely on your discretion in this matter, should you decide to take my case on. Discretion is my middle name. Mine's Cynthia, but you can count on me, too. If it helps you, why don't you lay things out in the hypothetical, and we can let you know if we can help. Hypothetically, of course. Of course. Thank you. That might be best. The story's not a very original one, I'm afraid. A young girl, very much in love with a certain young man, sends him letters telling him so in no uncertain terms, and receives the same sort of letters back from her love. Time passes, not very much of it looking back, but an eternity of warm summer nights to two people who have every expectation of more, and every day they cannot be together, there are letters. Then the war came, and the young man, like so many young men, goes off to fight. More letters flow between them. The letters speak of memories they shared and dreams they never would. My handkerchief? Thank you. The young man was killed? Yes. Yes, he died in Italy, and part of me died with him. Forgive me, I can no longer maintain the pretense. In time, I learned to live again, and even to love, after a fashion. Not with the same flaming passion of youth. That was for him alone. But a good man, a trustworthy and dependable man. My husband. I understand. The youthful letters that lost love sent to me have been my comfort. My husband is a decent man and allows me my privacy. I never had to worry about him discovering them. Until... I beg your pardon? Forgive me, ma'am. You wouldn't be here if there wasn't an until or an unless coming up fast. Of course. In all the years that I was comforted by those letters, it honestly never occurred to me to wonder... What became of the letters you sent him? How did you know? Forgive me, ma'am, but as you say, the story's not that original. We've dealt with this kind of situation before. We're willing to play it however you'd like, and no one needs to hear a word about it. But I think it's time we laid our cards on the table. How do you mean? Your name would be a real good start. Must I? I'll double your usual retainer. Sorry, precious. If trouble calls, we can take a lot of heat for you. But we can't protect you if we're in the dark. Besides, it's bad for business. I see. My name is Donna Ryan. Jack's eyes narrowed and his jaw set hard behind his smirk. Donna Ryan, wife of industrialist Clarence Ryan. The Ryans drew a lot of water in this town. This might be more trouble than it was worth. Jack glanced at me. I shrugged a little. We did need the case, but did we need the headaches? I was doing mental arithmetic, adding up the pros and cons on an invisible ledger. Jack's eyes drifted back to Mrs. Ryan. I wondered what he was adding up. The Ryan dame looked down at her shoes. Her whole body was shaking trembling in a way that had nothing to do with the draft through the office window. She'd touched up her face before she came in, but this close I could see that a lot of tears had wandered past those eyes in the last few hours. She was terrified. Terrified of everything. Everything she had and everything she'd lost. We knew who she was, and she was almost sure we'd use it to our advantage. That tore it. I'm different things to different people, but I'm a blackmailer to nobody. All right, Mrs. Ryan. 
Take a breath and relax a little. I won't promise that everything's going to be fine, but we'll do our best to make it so. Your letters have come home to roost, have they? In a manner of speaking. It was just last night when a messenger arrived at my home. He delivered an envelope which contained a single letter in my own girlish hand, written shortly before the war. It also contained this. Trixie? Single page handwritten on the letterhead of the messenger company, probably written at their office. The text is short and to the point. Reply tomorrow, 8 p.m. Metrolite Hotel, room 314. That's it? That's all. That's odd. Why odd? You said you'd handled this sort of thing before. Yes, Mrs. Ryan, but usually the... I'm sorry, but the blackmailer will include a little more information about their terms. An amount would be a common thing to include, or at least a more direct suggestion of consequences. I can well imagine the consequences. These kind of people don't usually have that much imagination. Could mean anything. Could mean our mutual friend is new at this. That might work to our advantage. I see. It's your party, Mrs. Ryan. How do you want us to handle this? I'd like you to take care of it. Forgive me, ma'am. It's not that we're dense. It's just that that could mean anything, including a whole range of services we don't supply. I know this is difficult for you, but we've got to get specific if we're going to cut to the happy ending. I was young. In love. Some of these letters are very indiscreet. I must have them back. There's no guarantees in this kind of case. But the house odds say grit your teeth and pay up. If our mutual friend gets wise after that, well, there are ways of keeping him to the bargain. Him knowing that you've got someone in your corner usually helps. Do you want us to negotiate the purchase of the letters, Donna? This envelope contains $10,000. It's all I can raise on such short notice. I could probably get another 20 together in a few days, but any more than that and my husband would be sure to notice. Trixie, can we write up a contract for Mrs. Ryan? No, no contract. Nothing in writing. At least let us give you a receipt for... No, nothing, please. I don't want to make things worse. Then don't hand a total stranger $10,000 and hope for the best. I'd have to be either crooked or a fool to take it. Trixie, write out a receipt for Mrs. Ryan. Put a note on it that it's for a retainer. Retainer? A little high, I'll give you that. But it reads better than hush money. Mrs. Ryan signed the receipt. She didn't like it much, but she did it all right. I felt for her, poor thing. She stumbled her way into what most girls would call a happy ending. Most girls whose hearts weren't buried under a small white cross somewhere in Italy, that is. She'd lost everything once, and it was up to us to see it didn't happen again. I've never trusted blackmailers. If that sounds obvious, you've probably spent very little time in the company of scum, and your mother must be very proud of you. There's a certain logic at work in the criminal mind, a certain gray-collar work ethic that says, don't mess with me, and I won't mess with you. Blackmailers? Anyone who's that much of a natural-born coward will do anything at any moment just because he's afraid. And old Squarejaw wasn't known for his subtlety. So before we kept our date at the Metrolite, I took a few extra precautions. Here we are, Trix. Room 314. You ready for this? I've got the Beretta in my handbag and a snub-nosed 38 strapped to the inside of my thigh, if that's what you're asking. I wasn't, but thanks for the mental pinup. I don't like this. I think you're right. Heads we kick it in, tails we work the lock. Work the lock, tough guy. You're no fun. I'm not here to be fun. Not with that 38 on the road to Berlin. Got the lock. You ready? Ready. No, brother. You said it. On the floor, behind the bed was a man, about 45. 5'10", 5'11", if he was standing, which he wasn't likely to do again. His suit was blue, pinstriped, well cut, and soaked in his own blood. The blood was thickening, maybe an hour old, maybe more, and had come from a wound in his chest. Not three feet away lay a twenty-two pistol, but whether it belonged to our boy or the shooter, I couldn't say. A nice, simple case. When are we going to catch a nice, simple case? Not today, Angel. This ain't our blackmailer on the floor. 
It's Clarence Ryan. You are listening to Blackjack Justice, another fine program from Decoder Ring Theater. Whether you are listening via podcast or through one of our broadcast partners, be sure to stop by our website, www.decoderingtheater.com, for all our latest episodes, information on upcoming shows, and much more. If you enjoy these programs and wish to see them continue, please consider making a small contribution through one of the convenient PayPal links on our homepage. And please do take the time to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, post a link, or take a moment to rate or review our programs through your podcast directory or service. And remember, wherever you may roam, DecoderRingTheater.com is your address for adventure, mystery, and comedy. Jack dialed the front desk and asked for the police. The boy at the desk had been too busy with a dime novel to pay much attention when we'd walked past him, so Jack figured I could slip down the fire escape to give our client the heads up without both our licenses getting pulled. I drove out to the Ryan spread with John Law maybe 15 minutes behind me. Her reaction was far from typical. And that's the way it is, ma'am. We can try and keep your name out of it for a while, but they'll book Jack as a suspect eventually, just to sweat him. You said I could count on anonymity. Yes, ma'am, but this is a murder investigation now. Unless the cops find your husband's killer on their own, they're going to need every lead they can get their hands on. That is not your concern. My husband did not retain you. I did. I wanted the matter closed as soon as possible. Obviously, Clarence became aware of the blackmail scheme and foolishly tried to intercede to protect me. He was a good man, Miss Dixon. He gave his life to protect me from public shame. It seems wrong now to come forward. Forgive me for saying so, Mrs. Ryan, but that seems like a pretty convenient way to see things. Don't be impertinent. Mr. Justice and yourself were given a very generous retainer to see this matter through. I now consider it closed. Good day. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I headed back to the office and waited for Jack. He sailed in close to seven the next morning. I relatively like grilling by his standards. We'd caught a break. The doorman remembered Jack coming in at least an hour after Clarence Ryan got stiffed, according to the M.E.'s report. He didn't even look like the boys in blue had worked him over that much. And he always kind of looked like that. I reckoned he'd got off easy. I don't think they're done with me yet, Trix. There's a prowl car out front with a couple of thick-necked bulls in the front. They're watching us for the moment. We should try and pin this one down before we get in too deep. The client says let it lie. Then the client is in shock, or... Or what? No, it doesn't make any sense. Why would she spill her guts to two private dicks and off her husband in a sleazy hotel? That where this was headed? Something like that. If I know Lieutenant Sabian, he's given me enough rope to lead him to whoever was in that room when Clarence Ryan knocked on the door. So what do we do? That. We do exactly that. Get your hat. We didn't have much. A receipt for the first and last $10,000 retainer we were ever likely to see. A musty old letter from a girl who'd become a woman who'd become a widow and a hastily written note on the letterhead of a messenger company. Look, buddy, we're just a delivery service, but our clients expect some kind of privacy too, you know? Sure, sure. I told the bulls out front that one last night. Gave me nothing but a slow dance with a phone book. I don't understand. No? Your ribs should send you flowers. Look, Mr... Brian. Brian. We don't want to know what was in the package... We're just asking if you remember the man who sent it. It was a late delivery, sent in the evening two nights ago, and the man who sent it borrowed a sheet of letterhead to write a note to go with it. She was good, all right. 
I'd never tell her that, but she was slick. Brian sure thought so. Of course, he didn't know about the 38. Sure. Sure, no package, just the note and another letter, right? Right. Sure, he paid cash. Didn't leave no name. Left an address. Metrolite Hotel? Yeah. He checked out. Can you remember what he looked like? Uh, sure, I guess. Kind of medium build, brown hair, glasses. Talked funny. Like an accent? Yeah, but not really. You know, English, but not too English. And he had a shrapnel scar in his left hand. You see a lot of shrapnel scars in the messenger business? No. Infantry. That narrows it down to half the guys in town, including you and me. Thanks for your help. Sure. Oh, hey, listen. It was a late delivery, but it wasn't a late drop-off, if that helps you. What do you mean? He came in around noon, asked for delivery after six, paid extra. Pal, I'm begging you. The name on the envelope. You infantry? Yeah. Italy? You name it. Ah, heck. The name was Ryan. Just Ryan? No Mr. or Mrs.? Nah, just Ryan. Thanks, pal. Come on, Trix. I could use a shot of breakfast. We settled in at a dive around the corner called Dugan's. I wasn't sure how Jack's war stories trumped my eyelash batting. He said, you had to be there. Be glad you weren't. But halfway through his bourbon, he started making sense. If you were going to blackmail a lady, what's the one thing you'd make sure to do? I'm too sleepy for the Socratic method. Spill. Our blackmailer asked for delivery after six, when he could expect the man of the house to be home. And the envelope was addressed to Ryan, which means if the mister had been there, he'd have opened it. Right? Stands to reason. Let's have another drink and read each other love letters. Jack leaned on the bell at the Ryan plays hard. There was none of his usual smug self-satisfaction in his eyes, so I knew he wasn't looking forward to testing his theory. If he was right, his news would be even less welcome than the message I'd brought the night before. Jack pushed his way past the houseboy. I followed him quickly. Across the street, our shadows in the idling patrol car watched with all the subtlety of a brick through a window. You! I told you last night... You talk to us now or you'll do a great deal more talking later. And it'll be to a judge. It's up to you, but my way's easier. Please, please, my husband is dead. Stop it! If you gave a damn about your husband's death, you wouldn't be protecting his murderer. How dare you! I said stop it! There isn't time for the debutante dramatic society. Look out that window. See that patrol car? Yes. They'd rather not come in here themselves. Out of respect for you and your family, the Ryan name carries some weight in this town. It won't if pictures of a police raid are in every paper in town, so they're letting me do this my way. I don't know what you're talking about. Why would they raid my house? They'd be carrying out a search warrant, looking for some old love letters, and they'd find them, too. Why are you doing this? Love letters sent to you years ago from a man that died in the war. Love letters written in a hand that matches this note sent two nights ago from a messenger company downtown. A hand that matches the signature in the register of the Metrolite Hotel, room 314. He's changed his name probably more than once. The letter you left with us says he used to be my darling Mike. Stop it! How dare you! He showed up at the door about an hour before Miss Dixon arrived with news of your husband's death. That's about right, isn't it? Stop it! Darling, I've returned at last. I've killed your husband so we can be together. That was the line, wasn't it? Wasn't it? You can't prove any of this! Maybe I can, maybe I can't. But there's a few questions you need to ask yourself before you make me try. Questions? You're not going to like this, Donna. You've got to listen. This lost love of yours. Where's he been all this time? The war's long over. I hear he's picked up an English lilt 
English, mind you, not German or Italian or even Japanese. I don't know how he came to be officially dead. That kind of thing can happen in war. You can believe whatever he's told you if you like. But where's he been all this time? Before you become accessory after the fact in the murder of your husband, you need to ask yourself why this once-in-a-lifetime love of yours started a new life somewhere else. Stop it! Get out! If I get out, the law comes in, and both of you can hang. Jack, Mrs. Ryan, the blackmail no- There was no blackmail! There was, Mrs. Ryan, but not the kind you think. You received a package containing one of your old love letters. You assumed the sender meant to blackmail you. But he paid extra for evening delivery. The note wasn't meant for you. It was for your husband. What? Wherever you are, however many obstacles, dangers, however many years may stand between us, I will always belong to you and only you. My one true love, I will always be yours and yours alone. You wrote those words, Mrs. Ryan. You assumed the package was for you, and you assumed it was the first of its kind. Later, Mike convinced you he meant it as a token, to let you know he'd come back to you. But if you read the letter he chose to send, you see that it could easily be sent as final proof of your devotion to your darling Mike. It's the only explanation. The blackmail was already underway when this letter was sent. That's how your husband knew about our mutual friend at the Metrolite Hotel. Darling Mike wasn't charging your husband for your letters. He wanted money to stay away. That letter was meant to prove to your husband that he'd lose you if Darling Mike returned. Maybe your husband would have paid to keep him away. Maybe he'd have paid to spare you the pain of knowing what a louse your one true love was. We'll never know. We may never know for sure just what went wrong, why Darling Mike put a slug through your husband's heart. But he wasn't through. He knew about the letter that had gone astray. Guessed you must have it and showed up at your door with tears in his eyes and a paper-thin story on his lips. Isn't that right, Mrs. Ryan? Oh, my God! <laughs> one way or another, Mrs. Ryan, the right thing is going to happen. Stay ahead of the curve. It's only been a few hours. Come with me down to the station. Tell them who killed your husband. Tell them where he is. Why are you doing this? Keeping you out of jail? Because you're our client. She did it all right. Came downtown with us and spilled the whole story. The cops had Darling Mike in custody in an hour. Jack's bluff about the cops and the search warrant caused no problems since she wasn't charged with a crime. The papers were full of it for a while, but Donna Ryan was in Europe by then, and as far as I know, she's never come back. She never called for the retainer, either. Her lawyers finally sent word that she considered the matter closed. And Jack? He went back to the office and packed up the file on the Moretti poisoning, the Worthington pearls, and all his other cold cases and put them into storage. Maybe they'd stay there. Maybe they wouldn't. Donna Ryan had spent her life imagining the love she'd lost was a perfect one. But he was just another heel. She'd had her letters, her memories, and a husband who didn't mind sharing her with a ghost. Now she had nothing. She was still young, and she had more dough than I'd ever see. But I wouldn't trade places with her for anything. Sometimes illusions are important. Sometimes the past should stay in the past. Blackjack Justice, Episode 1, Justice Served Cold, was written and directed by Greg Taylor and starred Christopher Mott and Andrea Lyons, with additional voices provided by Shannon Arnold and Greg Taylor. This recording and the story, characters, and situations depicted within are the property of their author and creator and protected by copyright. Until next time, remember, DecoderRingTheater.com is your address to adventure. <laughs>
Hi, this is Eddie Winters, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, the shame grave station with a great new name. Wow, cool. Much cool. The new name? What? I thought the radio was talking to me. That's weird. What was weird? This. I'm talking to a podcast. That's impossible. Not really. This is Mutiny Radio. If you're listening, we're listening to... Cool. Mutiny Radio, the evolution has begun. They all knew he was aboard the yacht when it exploded and sank. And everybody called his death an accident. That is, everybody except the corpse himself. He said it was murder. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Restless Day. It had been a long, hard Saturday night that topped off a long, rugged week. When I finally got to bed dog-tired at 5 a.m. Sunday morning, I was planning to stay there until I'd caught up on all the sleep I'd lost and gained a running head start on the coming week. And by three in the afternoon on the day of rest, I figured that job was only about half done. But whoever it was that started riding my doorbell had a different idea. I held out until the buzzer stopped, but it was only a change of tactics, so I gave up. All right, all right, I know when I'm licked. Just a minute. Thank heaven you're in, Mr. Marlowe. Hmm? I don't know what I'd have done otherwise. <coughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Here, read this. This story on the front page. What? No, down here. Oh, yacht explosion, death label accident, huh? Yes, yes. Oh. Mystery blast which destroyed the Rollins yacht at Santa Monica Friday night, and in which Benjamin Rollins, noted cosmetics manufacturer, was killed, was established today by police investigators as accidental. <coughs> Sorry, I spoke too That's much. That's all right. The explosion which shattered and sank the 50-foot pleasure boat was caused by a leaking fuel line. Rollins, known to be a chain smoker, is believed by witnesses to have continued on page seven. <laughs> Never mind, Marlowe. <laughs> I'll tell the rest. Yeah, think you'll make it? There are two frightening things wrong with that story. Well, go ahead. Frighten me. First, the explosion was no accident. That pure line was repaired a week ago. Second, Ben Rollins was not killed. You're shaking my faith in the American press. How do you know all this? Because I am Benjamin Rollins. Yes, well, look, fella, you better dial 116 on the phone and tell the police all about it, no, huh? No, no, that's exactly what I can't do. Someone's tried to murder me. If they find out I'm still alive, I'll be a target for a second attempt. <coughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. I need two things right now. One, a cup of coffee. Would you like some? No, milk, if you please. My doctor insists. Okay, come on. The other's a good, solid explanation of why everybody thinks you were aboard that yacht. Well, first, they believe my body was lost in the explosion. You see, I intended to spend the night there because Lucille, my wife, and I had quarreled. Mm -hmm. But I got a call, and I had to go out of town on business at the last minute. I went out to the boat, but only to pick up some papers. I was in a hurry. I must have left the lights on. I lost my hat in the wind on the way back. <laughs> it was found. It was found in the water. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't secure the dinghy because that was a drift offshore. Mind you, I read all this in the paper when I got back this morning. Back from where? Phoenix. Arizona. Figures. I came in on the California Limited. You can check on that. 
Marlowe, I must know who tried to kill me before they know they've failed. Uh-huh. That could be tough. Have you got any ideas? Yes, I have. It might be any one of three people. Three? For instance, Walter Pittman, my ex-partner, threatened to kill me less than a month ago in New York when I won another court decision from him. Mm-hmm. Then there's my business manager, a fellow named Slater. I almost fired him last week, the arrogant fool. <laughs> it's always when I get cross this country. Yeah, I see. So, and I'm sorry to say it, but Mrs. Rollins would no doubt rather have me dead than alive. <laughs> That's quite a lineup for a mere cosmetics chemist, isn't it? Yes, it is. Look, you haven't been running lipstick experiments with somebody else's live equipment, have you, Rollins? Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly not. I've been working so hard, I haven't time for my wife. <coughs> to say nothing of another woman. Oh, Marlowe, I'm frightened. I must get to the bottom of this. I'll pay you double your usual fee. Will you help me? Okay, Rollins, it's a deal. If I hurry, I might get in on your funeral. Under the circumstances, that should make somebody due for a very big surprise. Shave in a shower later, and I checked my wheezing client's credentials, settled him down in my apartment with orders to answer the phone, but not the door, and drove out to Santa Monica where the not very late Ben Rollins had made his home. I had a list of names, addresses, and phone numbers of people close to Rollins. That is, close enough to kill. I decided that Arthur Slater, the business manager, was my best bet for an opener. He had been described as soft spoken, efficient, and somewhat arrogant. And after I found his cottage on Seaview Drive and walked up to the door, I heard someone inside offering a similar description, but with more color. Mighty routine, Arthur Slater. If you think for two minutes you could throw little Angie over any time you feel like it, after all the promises you've made, you're wrong. That's just about enough, Angie. Not by half, brother. I know which way the wind is blowing, and it's a nice big wind. Nobody kicks me out, and I mean nobody. So think it over, Mr. Big. Get out of my way. Yes, ma'am. Cute kid. Friend of yours, Slater? Who are you? Another insurance investigator? That's right. My name's Marlowe. May I come in? Yes, certainly. All the others did. Thanks. Who knows? I may be the last. Slater, I've got three reasons for believing that yacht explosion was no accident. Not an accident? What reasons are you talking about? For one, Walter Pittman. Pit- Pittman? You mean Rollins' ex-partner? You know him, huh? Well, only by name. I never met the man. All right, then. Let's talk about reason number two, Lucille Rollins. How do you feel about it, Slater? Well, you must be out of your mind, Marlowe. She and Ben fought constantly, yes. Slater, I asked how you felt about Mrs. Rollins. I don't like her. And now, what or who is reason number three? You are. You had an argument with Rollins last week. He practically fired you. And you think I'd kill him over that? Could be. Look, Marlowe, Ben Rollins drove himself like an overloaded truck. He had a cigarette cough, nervous shakes, and bad dreams. To me, bureau drawer eyelashes and glue-on fingernails simply aren't that important. So we had frequent arguments. Now, do you have any more smart reasons you'd like to discuss, or would you care to leave? Just one thing more. Why does your girlfriend think you're a little stuck up these days? You're becoming a bit too personal, Marlowe. Get out. I'm not compelled to answer any of your questions. There's an established legal procedure... Skip it, Slater. If I need to, I'll be back. And I'm fairly chummy with the boys in blue myself, so I'll get the answers if I want them. Good night, big shot. Arthur Slater was like a billiard ball, hard to rub the wrong way. And if he did have an angle, he was playing cagey. So as long as I was in the neighborhood and the trail was hot, I figured I'd have a talk with the Spitfire, Angie. It wasn't hard to trail her. A corner newsboy had heard her get into a cab. The cabbie swore he'd never forget her. Swore again. 
So finding her apartment was less trouble than unfolding a $5 bill. When I pulled up across the street from a place, I noticed a big car as big as the average garage and older than last year's college graduate parked in front. It was a black Pierce Arrow and someone with a mouthful of cigar hulked behind the wheel. The cigar was pointed at me as I crossed the street. When I went up the stairs to Angie's door, it was still pointed at me. But I forgot about that when the apartment door opened. Angie was relaxed. There were little glints of gold in her green eyes. And the warm lights behind her shimmered on soft waves of hair. A shade of burnished copper. Maybe she was a spitfire, but at the moment, her damper was down. Yeah. Well, Buster, you got your mouth open. You might as well say something. Uh, Angie, who do you think murdered Ben Rollins? Murdered? My mistake, chum. Good night. Just a minute. This is business, honey. Who are you, anyhow? Philip Marlowe. You ran over me on your way out of Slater's place a few minutes ago and dented my ego. Well, sue me. Who are you working for, Shamus? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. But I will tell you this, sweetheart. The explosion on that yacht was no accident. So I'm checking up on wives that'd rather be widows. Lucille Rawlin? Mm-hmm. Nuts. She was rolling in dough either way. She hated her job, but she sure didn't have to kill to quit. Get your compass fixed, Marlowe. Wrong way, huh? Well, suppose Lucille were in love with uh, Pittman, maybe. Pittman? Who's he? Shot in the dark. Tell me something, Angie. Your boyfriend Slater has picked up a lot of push lately. How come? Oh, some big deal they've been working on at the plant. And he makes me sick. Gets the first sniff of a success, and suddenly all his hats are too small. Especially his old hats, honey. And you can't blame the guy if he's really on his way up now, can you? Listen, Mac, I'll tell you, him, and the whole world something. Nobody is going to put little Angie on the skids. If there's a heave-ho pulled around here, Mr. Hotshot Slater himself will get it. And right in the neck. So if you happen to be snooping for him, Marlowe, you can putter right back and tell him so. Now beat it! That's not a bad idea. Oh, by the way, what's Angie stand for? Angelica. But don't count on it, brother. Don't count on it. As I went down the front steps, the cigar and the black Pierce Harrow lined up on me again and followed me as I crossed the street and got into my car. It was still pointing at me as I drove away, but after all, the street was public property and the guy could smoke a cigar if he wanted to. Well, by the time I knocked on the front door of the Rollins' home, I was braced for a deluge of tears and a session of red-eyed hysteria. So I was caught off balance by the handsome blonde woman of 35 with a wry, crisp waistline who was cool, calm, and well-collected in green slacks. She introduced herself as Lucille Rollins. Sit down, Mr. Marlowe. You said you're a friend of Ben's? That's right, Mrs. Rollins. I stopped by to offer my condolences. But apparently condolences aren't much in order today. No tears, huh? Not even crocodile tears. I'm not a hypocrite, Mr. Marlowe, that's why. I'm merely stunned and confused over this terrible accident, and I'm not sure yet how I feel. Yeah, it was an accident, all right. Especially since that leaky fuel line that caused it was repaired a week ago. It had been repaired? Oh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Who are you, Marlowe? I'm a private detective, and I know a lot more than that. I know, for instance, that the insurance on the boat alone will keep you and pretty doodads for several years. And that's only a drop in a bucket. Mr. Marlowe, I think you'd better leave. And I think you'd better climb down off that high horse and listen. Because I haven't even started yet. Ben was a hated man by Pittman, by Slater, and maybe by you. And I can prove he didn't die accidentally, baby, so I'd like some nice straight answers, huh? When did you see Pittman last? I've never seen Walter Pittman. I don't even know what he looks like. 
Ken and I were married two years ago. He broke with Pittman long before that. But you're pretty chummy with Arthur Slater. That's a lie. Why, we hardly spoke until a week ago. You picked a poor time to get friendly, baby. Listen here, Marlowe. Mr. Slater, I ran into each other purely by accident one afternoon last week. I happened to stop in at a small bar in downtown Los Angeles. Mr. Slater was there at the table talking with some man, a stranger to me. When he saw me, he came over. He seemed upset. So upset. Wait a minute. Is there anyone else here now? Well, no. My maid went out to the movies. Savannah. I heard something, a noise. Sounded like it came from the service boys. Come on, let's have a look. Well, I don't know what any... Hey! The lights went off. Somebody turned them off. You better... Lucille, look out! (laughs) Bullets which had been intended for Lucille had only traveled the width of the kitchen, but miraculously both had missed. Whoever had thrown them moved out fast, because when I got through the service porch and into the backyard, nothing stirred except the restless ends of a pepper tree. But a second later, a heavy, clanking motor roared on the side street, and I got to the fence just in time to see a boxcar on rubber tires skid around the corner. It was a black Pierce Arrow. I went back to the house, found the master switch, and turned on the lights. Lucille, her face strained and bloodless, stood in the kitchen door and watched me. A hole had been punched in the back screen door, and on the floor was a strange object which had been used to unhook the lock. It looked like an oversized bobby pin wearing rubber pants, which didn't mean a thing to me. But to Lucille, who stared at it like it was a centipede she'd just found in a cream puff, it meant plenty. Ben. What? It's like Ben himself was here. Like he wasn't killed at all. What are you talking about? What is this thing, anyway? I... I don't know. Part of some new invention he was working on. For the last month, Ben carried two or three of these things with him everywhere. Look, Lucille, where's your phone? Right there. Oh. But, Marlo, you... You don't suppose... Who are you going to call? Friend of mine. He'd better be in, too. Marlo. What's the matter? Marlo busy? Yeah, yeah, busy. He's either talking to someone or he's gone out after leaving the phone off the hook. And either way, Lucy, that makes my friend very busy. just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, it may have taken a little detective work finding a much-wanted man last week, but an unprecedented number of listeners seem to have turned Philip Marlowe. For Jack Benny's largest audience this season found him here on his opening show on CBS. Tomorrow night, Jack will be back with Mary, Dennis, Phil, Rochester, and Don for more of the fun that's made the Jack Benny Show the number one comedy in radio. You'll find him right here on CBS every Sunday at 7 Eastern Standard Time. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Restless Day. When I left Lucille Rollins, the feminine target for tonight, I headed for Angie Gordon's where I'd first seen the man with a cigar in his face who I suddenly figured might be Walter Pittman. And as I drove, I felt like my brains had spent the night playing leapfrog in a squirrel cage. Because any way I call the dice, every one of my clients suspected of murdering him to somebody else. And just to keep things from making any sense at all, I suspected my client. I pulled up near Angie's and saw the Pierce Arrow parked, lights and a man with cigar out. When I got close to the bungalow door, I 
knew that the lady was at home. Now look here, and that she was receiving a gentleman caller, more or less. Tell me your name is Smith, which incidentally I don't believe. And then you start asking a lot of very personal questions. How cozy. Now, please, you do not understand. There are certain things about the death of Ben Hollins that I must know. Things that mean a lot to me. How much a lot? Well, a hundred dollars, maybe. What? Now, don't tell me that's all you could stuff into that briefcase there in your hand. Listen, girl, I, I must know whether that explosion on the boat was an accident or not. The police let it go as an accident? Never mind that. You are Slater's girl. You must know something about him as well as the other one who was here. Now, you tell me. Oh, Quick. Stay away from me, you big lug. I don't know anything. Let, let me... go of me, my uh, let go You heard the lady, Pittman. Let go. Uh, how do you know my name? I read tea leaves. And while we're all asking questions, do you mind telling me why you were throwing bullets at the chinaware on Mrs. Rollins? I did no such thing. I don't even know Mrs. Rollins. You're a liar, and it's dull as the sauerkraut. The gun in your pocket will prove it. I, I have no gun in my pocket. Here. Here, look for yourself. All right, I will. But if it's all the same to you, I'll start with your briefcase. Well, give me that. Why? So you can get to the gun first? No, because I... Uh, all right. All right, Mr. Smart Man. Go ahead and look. See for yourself that there's absolutely nothing there that concerns you. No! And don't look so astonished, friend. It's called a gun. Why, you little... Uh, 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 skip it, Marlowe. This isn't my idea of returning a favor, but it, it is good business. You see, baby, little Angie sells out to the highest bidder. And no matter how I add things up, that isn't you. So exit Pittman, huh? Briefcase and... What are you staring at? That. That little gadget there. Must have fallen out of Pittman's briefcase. Uh, what is it? Twin brother of an item I found a little while ago. Rubber pants included. What are you talking about, Marlo? Nothing, baby. Just tell me how long I sit here. <laughs> as long as you like. Now, you see, Marlo, I just can't afford to let you get the pitman ahead of me. Yeah. That good business you were talking about. Uh-huh. After all, a gal's got to make a living. One way or another, Marlo. Doesn't she? <laughs> There was room to debate Angie's point, but no time. So I skipped her invitation for a drink. Both promised and threatened to see her again and headed for my car in the only direction left. The residence of the local pivot man, Mr. Arthur Slater. When I got to within a block of the place, I parked and then approached slowly, keeping to the shadows all the way. But the house turned out to be as dark and quiet as the inside of a coffin. And I was about to leave when some noise a dozen yards behind me said that I was no longer alone. Turned quietly and got ready for what I figured would be a reunion with my old buddy, Walter Pittman. But I was wrong. Sneaking through a nearby clump of orange trees with all the deftness of an ox with bunion trouble was no one else but my client, Ben Rollins. When I called his name out loud, he ran toward me, arms and legs flailing the wind like a Kansas scarecrow caught in a tornado. Marlo, Marlo, I've been looking all over for you. Rollins, why aren't you back in my apartment where you're supposed to be? I couldn't wait any longer. I was afraid something had happened to you. When you didn't call, I was sure of it. I thought you might be here at Slater's. But I did call, and all I got was a busy signal. Oh, about an hour ago. Well, that was a friend of yours. He wanted to know if you'd play cards with him tonight. <laughs> now, do you believe me? Now, for the time being, yes. Incidentally, Rollins, do these mean anything to you, these oversized bobby pins? Good Lord, the curlers. 
Where did you get those curlers, Marlowe? They should be in my safe. Well, I found one at your house and the other in a briefcase that belonged to Walter Pittman. But, Marlowe, these are samples of my newest invention, these hair curlers. They can produce a home permanent wave overnight that will last for six months. <laughs> it's, it's worth millions to me. <laughs> if you live. Yes. Now, it should be easy to figure out who wanted to kill me. I'm not so sure. If you didn't even know these were missing, why should someone have to kill you to get hold of them? And second of all, how come the shooting's still going on? What shooting are you talking about? Over at your place. Somebody tried to kill your wife there just before I called you. And that brings us right back to your alibi about talking to Ibarra at the time. It's a little too pat, Rollins. Besides, that curler could very easily have dropped out of your pocket. Why should I shoot at Lucille? For the best reason in the books, you wanted to kill her. And when that yacht business almost boomeranged on you, you still hadn't changed your mind. And that led to this whole routine with me double-billed as Patsy and star witness both. Oh, you're out of your mind, Marlowe. I couldn't have set that explosion on the yacht as a trap for Lucille. Why not? Because it was on account of me that Lucille wasn't on the yacht herself that night. What? After we argued, we decided not to spend any more time under the same roof. Lucille said that suited her fine and she'd sleep on the yacht. We let it go at that till about noon on Friday. And you got small about things and said the yacht was yours, maybe? That you'd sleep on it? Uh, yes. I was just bickering. Just a minute, Rollins. I've heard enough, and I think I finally understand this whole screwy deal. I'll know for sure just as soon as I can make one single phone call to your house. We'll get back to Slater. Come on. When I got to a telephone and threw to the maid at the Rollins place... I was almost positive that in another minute I'd have both a solid answer for my client and a couple of clumsy customers for the law. When the shaky voice at the other end of the tube told me that Lucille had just left the house in high gear, after mumbling something about a place called Inspiration Point, I stopped being confident and started to worry. And when I tossed the jackpot question at the maid and got the winning answer, that worry became something worse, and it must have showed. What is it, Marlowe? What did you find out? Too much to explain now. Where's Inspiration Point, Rollins? About a mile south of here, mm-hmm. straight along the shore. Good. What kind of a car does your wife drive? A blue Nash. What's Inspiration Point got to do with Lucille, Marlowe? Everything. Now, look. You call the cops and tell them to get out there as fast as they can. Do you get me? As fast as they can. <laughs> Point turned out to be an acre of windswept rock that overlooked the cold January sea. After I saw Lucille's empty car, I crept, staggered, and fell down the narrow winding trail that led from the road to the promontory itself. I was afraid that I was going to be too late to stop what I was sure was a hastily scheduled murder. But a minute later, when I rounded the last crazy turn in the trail, I felt better. Because standing only a couple of yards away from me, her hair slapping wildly against the upturned color of her coat, and very much alive was Lucille Rollins. I was about to breathe a sigh of relief when suddenly I caught the expression in her eyes. I turned to follow the line of her unblinking gaze and I knew that I hadn't arrived any too soon because the lady was being held at the point of a gun. A gun held by Arthur Slater. I closed my hand tight around the cold thirty-eight in my pocket and moved closer. When you called me at the house, you said that my husband was alive and with you. Why did you lie to me? Because I knew that would bring you running. I had to be alone with you, Lucille, so I could do what I missed doing last time. Last time? You mean the yacht? You did that? Yes. But somehow or other, Ben was out there instead of you. So that accident was a waste of time. But this one, 
the bereaved wife who jumped or fell to her death from the edge of Inspiration Point won't be. But why, Slater? Why do you want to kill me? There's no time to explain, Lucille. And we'll take time, Slater. Marlowe, you... Yeah, me. Don't you... Marlowe! Marlowe, he's going to kill me. Yes, honey, I know. He had to. But why, Marlowe? Why? Because he stole your husband's invention to sell the wall of Pittman. He was going to go into business with him. But now when the cops get here, he's going first to a hospital and then to jail. A grand larceny and attempted murder. Attempted murder? What about Ben, Marlowe? Ben was a near miss, honey, nothing more. You'll see what I mean in a minute. When Lucille found out that Ben was still alive, there were a lot of tears and promises to be good from both parties. And it wasn't until an hour had gone by and the police had already booked both Slater and Pittman, who was picked up heading back for L.A. But Mr. and Mrs. Rollins were in the condition to sit down and talk things over, even with the help of coffee and cigarettes in the Rollins' home. And the whole scheme, Marla, was designed by Slater, who, as my business manager, had access to the new curlers. That's right. Knowing how Walter Pittman felt about you, Slater secretly contacted him to handle the manufacturing end, you see? <laughs> yes, I see. Hmm. Well, a few changes in the design, and the whole thing would have been patented and on the market while you and Slater... Who pretended that Pittman was a stranger to him. Uh-huh. We're still laboring away at last-minute changes. And when we learned about Pittman's product, Slater would act as surprised as Ben here. Uh, you're so right, Lucille. That was the plan. <laughs> oh, but it fell apart. See, it fell apart when you accidentally ran into Slater in that small bar in downtown L.A., do you remember? Yes. When he was with Pittman, the man you described to me as the stranger? Yes, of course. All right. Well, he realized then that with Pittman's product a success, you would sooner or later see a picture of Pittman, oh. the newly rich inventor, and recognize him as the man you saw with Slater before Pittman's product was on the market. So that meant that Slater either had to get rid of Lucy or give up his entire plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you got a match, Mr. Mo- no. No, I'm going to give them up. But Marlowe, was Pittman involved in the murder attempt, too? No, no, no. He drew the line at the theft. See, when he found out that you had died mysteriously, he turned up here to check on Slater because he couldn't afford to be mixed up in your murder. I see. But how did you figure all this, Marlowe? Well, after I had tangled with everybody, I was no place. Angie Gordon was looking for an angle. You, Lucille, were getting shot at. Poor darling. Yeah, and Pittman and Slater were not on the same team. At least as far as the business on the yacht was concerned. Nobody seemed to have a clear-cut motive. But when I told you that Lucille herself was supposed to stay on the yacht that night, you had the answer. That was the time. After I called your house and asked the maid the jackpot question, which was, who aside from you, Ben, knew that Lucille was going to sleep on the yacht Friday night? And she said Slater, didn't she? Yeah. Said something else, too. She also said that you had left for Inspiration Point in a big hurry. Yes. Then Slater tried to kill me first on the yacht... Second in the house here and finally out on the point. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it worked out fine, darling. Because the third time was the charm. <laughs> For us. by the time I was through tying in all the loose ends for my client and his wife, it was three o'clock in the morning and I was dog-tired all over again. When I got into my car and started away from the place, Ben and Lucille were standing in the doorway waving at me and smiling. So as I drove back toward L.A., I forgot about the sleep I was missing and thought about them. 
A couple who couldn't get along until one or the other of them had been robbed, dynamited, and shot at. Yeah, I guess it's really so. As the old bromide has it, the path of true love never does run smooth. Uh, smoothly. It's smooth. Hmm. Oh, well. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Lorette Philbrandt, Edgar Barrier, Virginia Gregg, John Daner, and Jack Moyles. The special music was by Richard Arunt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... Somewhere in the cold, persistent rain that made the city itself seem a thing of evil, a girl had disappeared, and it was my job to find her. But before I did, I found death and a devil. The Jack Benny Shows on CBS Sundays at 7. Eastern Standard Time, and comes right in the middle of 90 minutes of wonderful comedy on CBS's new early Sunday evening lineup. Immediately preceding Jack's show, you'll find Spike Jones and a Spotlight Review at 6.30 Eastern Time. And following the Benny Show, Amos and Andy take over with their inspired humor. Listen to Spike Jones and Amos and Andy over most of these same CBS stations tomorrow flanking Jack Benny. They add up to 90 solid minutes of merry Sunday listening on CBS. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. Take action today. Join Rain in the fight against sexual violence and volunteer in your local community. Visit rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G today to find out how you can make a difference. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A small boy is reported missing from his home. His age, nine years. Foul play is suspected. Your job, find him. 
If you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. And that's why Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. That's why Fatima is doubling and redoubling its smokers. So, if you want a long cigarette, smoke the best of all long cigarettes. Smoke Fatima. Dragnets, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, December 22nd. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way into work, and it was 3.55 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, Joe. Ben, what's you doing? Oh, pretty quiet. How's your mother? Oh, that cold's still hanging on. Bad cough. Doc says nothing serious. My kid's got the same thing. Must be some kind of a virus going around. Yeah. Is that a new suit you've got on? Oh, yeah. Ma figured I needed one. Let me see. Oh, yeah, that's a nice shade of blue. Where'd you get it? Quincy's down in South Fig. Look okay? Turn around. Oh, yeah, that's a good fit. Uh, did you get all the reports on the Webster case yet? Yeah, all taken care of. Let me get it. Homicide, Friday. This is Levinson, Unit 113J. Got something for you. Yeah, Harry, what's doing? Doherty and I are out here on Collis Avenue, 4656. Trying to track down a nine-year-old boy. What's the story? The kid's missing, suspicion of foul play. How long has he been gone? About two hours. Looks like a job for homicide. How do you figure? Kid was last seen playing in the backyard of his home. Yeah? We checked over the yard. Find anything? Bloodstains, lots of them. They look new. Ben and I left a message for Chief of Detectives Thad Brown. Then we went over to the crime lab, picked up Lieutenant Lee Jones, and drove out the Arroyo Seco Freeway to Collis Avenue. It was an average neighborhood. Number 4656 was a one-story green stucco residence situated on the corner of Collis Avenue and Harrison Drive. Beyond the backyard was a tract of undeveloped land covered with scrub oak. Harry Levinson from Highland Park Juvenile was waiting for us in front of the house. Back this way, fellas. I'm coming, Lee. Wait till I get my back. Okay. Well, who notified you that the boy was missing, Harry? The mother. Said she went out to do some Christmas shopping about 11 this morning, left the boy home. Came back about 2 this afternoon, he was gone. What's the name? Johnstone. Kid's name is Stanley, 9 years old. Mm-hmm. Was this gate open like this when you got here? Oh, yeah. I haven't touched this thing. Uh, here are the stains over here, Lieutenant Jones, uh, along the edge of the walk. See? Yeah. Let me see. Mm. Quite a few stains, huh? Looks like it might be blood. I'll try some benzodine on these spots here. Yeah, there we are. See what happens? Where's the kid's mother now, Harry? In the house. Doherty's talking to her. Did you talk to any of the neighbors? People next door. Uh, one's on this side. They couldn't tell us anything. There it is, fellas. Yowie? These spots are covered with benzodine. They turn blue. Blood stains, all right. Can't say definitely whether it's human or animal blood. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to the lab to run it through. Yeah, biological precipitant test. Hand me one of those glass vials from my bag, will you? Yeah. Okay, here you are. Hey, thanks. Scrape some of these flakes off for a test. There we are. 
How soon can you tap the blood for us, Lee? Precision tests won't run more than 20 minutes. It'll take three or four hours to run a blood grouping, though. That's it. Anything else you want to check? Levinson, anything else? Oh, uh, right here, my handkerchief. Empty shell. That marker over there by the rose bush, that's where I found it. Mm, from a twenty-two, huh? Yeah. Might tie in, might not. Mark it and dump it in this envelope, will you? Oh, yeah. There you go. Did you get out a missing broadcast in the boy here? Uh, Darty did about a half hour ago. Oh, here's a description here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mother know about the bloodstain? No, we didn't tell her. She's worried enough already. And she has no idea what might have happened to her boy? No more than we do. She checked all her friends, relatives. We're covering the neighborhood. No trace so far. Not much to go on. Bloodstains, empty cartridge. Could mean a hundred things. Mm. Any ideas, Franny? Yeah, just one, and I don't like it. <laughs> p.m. Thursday, December 22nd. The neighborhood search for nine-year-old Stanley Johnstone continued. Lee Jones went back to the crime lab to start the precipitant test and the blood grouping. Levinson and his partner, Doherty, from Highland Juvenile, stood by. We called Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, and he ordered up a special detail to aid in the search for the missing boy. Ben and I questioned the boy's mother, Mrs. Ruth Johnstone, a woman in her early 40s. She seemed fairly calm under the circumstances. Miss Johnstone, um, is your boy standing in the habit of wandering off without telling you where he's going? No, he's not in the habit of wandering off, but he has done it before. When was the last time, Miss Johnstone? You don't have any children, do you, Sergeant Friday? No, I'm not married. Well, there comes that time in every young boy's life when he feels that it's time to leave home, to go out on his own. Usually happens somewhere around 8 to 10. I think I know what you mean. I've got a boy. Well, then you know how it is. My husband and I scolded Stanley one day after school. He was quite put out about it. He thought George and I were unfair. Packed a few of his things and left. How long was he gone? Oh, no time at all. About two hours. I was worried about him, but my husband said to leave him alone. Said every boy had to go through that stage. Well, then you think he's run away from home again this time? Yes, I think so. He's been gone about four hours now, and... I have a funny feeling about it. Did you and his father have some misunderstanding with the boy recently? Well, that's just it. We haven't. I don't mind telling you now that we're talking about it. I am getting worried. Any place around that he might like to visit? Hobby shop, playground, where he might be? Yeah, there's um, Jensen's model shop and little Shanna Burroughs, but I've already called him and he hasn't been seen all day. I called all his friends. They have no idea where he is either. We'd like a list of all his friends and the places that he was known to frequent. Oh, yeah. All right. I'll give them to you. What do you suppose he is? Where's your husband now, Miss Johnstone? Oh, he's at work. George works for the city. He's a fireman. What house is he stationed at? Engine Company 12. He's working the A platoon. He'll be home tomorrow morning. I haven't told him as time he's gone. Was there any chance that the boy might be down at the firehouse with his father? No. No, he seldom goes down there anymore. No, I don't think he's there. I'm awfully worried. May I call my husband? Certainly. Go right ahead. I know George will be worried. Stanley's been gone too long. Hello? May I speak with George Johnstone? This is Mrs. Johnstone. Thank you. I hate to call George at his work. Yes, ma'am. Does your husband own a gun? Yes, he does. What caliber? Do you know? Well, it's a forty-five automatic. He got it. George? This is Ruth. George, is Stanley down there with you by any chance? Oh... No, I can't find him anywhere. He hasn't been here when I came home from my shopping. Uh, there are two policemen here. No, I said there are two policemen here. 
Oh, no, dear. I'll call you if we don't find him soon. All right, dear. Yes, you too. Goodbye. Uh, I didn't think he'd be with George. That forty-five is that the only gun in the household? Well, yes. Why are you asking about guns? Is, has anything happened that you're not telling me about? No, ma'am. Just routine checking. We'll have to take a look at that forty-five off, if you don't mind. Maybe I should tell you. We we do have another gun in the house, but it, it's all wrapped up. George bought it for Stanley's Christmas present. May we see it, please? Well, yes. Will, will you have to unwrap it? Yes, I'm afraid so. I think I can reach it. We we had to hide it. So let me see. Oh, here's the paper it was wrapped in. Stanley must have found it. It's gone. See, here's the gift card in the box the gun came in. The rifle. Can I look at that box, ma'am? Thank you. How about it, Jim? Twenty-two caliber. Thursday, December twenty-second, five fifteen p.m. It was getting dark. The search for the missing boy continued. We checked the list of Stanley Johnstone's friends. None of them or their parents had any idea of his whereabouts. We talked with Levinson again. He had been in touch with the detail combing the neighborhood. They had found nothing. We went down to Collis Avenue and 10th Street, service station on the corner. One nickel, Joe? No, I got one. You watch for that, huh? Yeah. Thank you. Two six six seven, please. Two six six seven. Crime lab, Jones. Hi, Lee. Joe Friday. Yeah, Joe. Any sign of the Johnson kid? No, not yet. How are you coming? Finished the precipitant test. It's human blood. Yeah. Working in the blood group now. Do you know what type the Johnson boy has? Well, we didn't want to upset his mother. I thought we'd wait till the last thing. We're still in the neighborhood. I check with the family physician. That way you won't disturb him. Yeah, we figured on that. Oh, just a minute, Lee. Yeah, yeah Ben. Boss just pulled up. Okay. Uh, Thad Brown's out here now. I'll check you later, Lee, huh? Yeah, right, Jim. All right, goodbye. Gentlemen, how's it going? Just checked with Lee Jones. Yeah, I know. It's human blood. What do you think? We talked with the boy's mother, Miss Johnston. Found a gun missing. Yeah. Caliber's the same as the empty casing that Levinson found. Twenty-two. You said the gun was missing. Yeah, the Johnstones were going to give it to the boy as a Christmas present. They had it hidden, but it's gone now. Any idea who took it? Well, they left the Christmas wrapping behind. I think it was the kid. 22 rifle, huh? Nine-year-old boy. When are they going to learn? First, it's carbide cannons on the 4th of July. The city issued ordinance after ordinance. But a few thousand kids around the country had to lose their eyes, fingers, hands. Before the parents gives us their full cooperation to outlaw them. I know what you mean. Sure you do. Even every other cop in the country became the heaviest trying to clamp down on them. It's always the same story. This time it's guns for Christmas. I know what you're thinking, but we're not sure yet. Listen, Friday, there's a city ordinance against giving a gun to a kid. You know that. Yes, I know that. There's a missing boy and a missing gun. There's blood on the ground and an empty shell. That's enough for me. I'm going to stay with it. Something's got to break. Yeah. I hope it's not the hearts of that kid's parents. Oh, hi, Chief. I've been looking for you, Friday. What do you got, Harry? Found the gun. New twenty-two rifle. Strong smell of cordite. I'd say it's been recently fired. Where'd you find it, Levinson? Uh, back up there in that scrub oak. Up behind the Johnston house. Mrs. Johnstone identified it. Buckley took it down to the crime lab. Thanks, Harry. Uh, is Mrs. Johnston okay? Mm, pretty sick now. Killaby came up with something else. What's that? There's another one missing. An eight-year-old boy. 6.30 p.m. We talked with Officer Killaby about the other missing boy. He told us that his name was Stephen Morheim, eight years old. 
His family had just moved into the neighborhood, and it seemed that no one besides the Morheim family knew that the boys played together. Mrs. Morheim told us that Stephen told her that he was going out to play and that he'd be home by 6 o'clock for dinner. She told us that he was an unusually prompt boy and almost never overstayed his playtime. We got a description of the Morheim boy and put out a missing broadcast. We called the Johnstone's family doctor. He told us that Stanley's blood was type O. At 7 p.m., we talked again with Mrs. John Morheim. Are you sure Mrs. Johnstone doesn't know where the boys are? She has no idea, Mrs. Morheim. It's terrible. It's just awful. I feel there's more to this thing. Something you're not telling me. Well, there's no use to upset you until we know a few things for sure. Then you are holding back something. Now, please try not to worry, Ms. Morheim. There are certain questions we'll have to ask, routine questions in any kind of investigation. Is there anything else you want to know? Yes, ma'am. What is your boy's blood type? That's a funny question. Do you think anything's happened to him? Have you found him and you're not telling me? No, ma'am, we haven't found him. We don't think anything's happened to him. His blood type? Yes, ma'am. I think I have it written down in Stevie's baby book. Yes, here it is. Type O. Thank you. What if I might use your phone, please? Yes, of course. It's in the hall. Be right back then. Yeah, okay. Two six six seven, please. Two six six seven. Oops. Hello, Ray. This is Friday. Lee there. Uh, just a minute, Joe. Take two, Lee. John speaking. Checking back, Lee. Uh, did you get the blood types on the two missing boys? Yeah, both boys type O. So are the stains, Joe. Type O. You are listening to Dragnet for the solution to an actual case from official police files. Now, here's a real solution to many of your Christmas shopping problems. If your friends smoke a long cigarette, give the best of long cigarettes, Fatima. Give Fatima for quality. The name Fatima has always stood for the best in cigarette quality. Give Fatima for flavor. Fatima has a much different, much better flavor and aroma than any other long cigarette. Give Fatima. They're extra mild. Yes, Fatima is the long cigarette which contains the finest Turkish and domestic tobaccos superbly blended to make Fatima extra mild. Yes, extra mild. So give Fatima for Christmas in the attractive golden yellow carton. It's the long cigarette that has doubled and redoubled its smokers. Yes, more and more smokers every day agree. Fatima is the best of all long cigarettes. Eight p.m. Thursday, December twenty-second. Still no sign of either of the missing boys. Chief of Detectives Thad Brown went back to headquarters to direct the search from there. He dispatched another detail of fifty men to aid in the hunt for the missing youngsters. Eight thirty p.m was getting colder. The citrus growers were warned to expect a freeze. We went up the block to see Mrs. Johnstone. Her husband had quit work early and returned home. We talked with him. He could tell us nothing more than we already knew. We still had not informed either of the families about the blood stains and the empty cartridge casing which had been discovered in the backyard of the Johnstone home. It was more than possible that they had a right to know about our findings, but Ben and I felt that there was no cause to add the, to the distress of the two families at this time. 
If the two missing boys were found alive and well, then the blood stains in the cartridge case would be of no concern to the relieved parents. At 8.40 p.m., Ben and I left the Johnstone house and went to the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Morheim. Ms. Morheim, you said your husband worked at a market? Yes. He telephoned about 15 minutes ago and said he was closing up right away. He'll be here any minute. I don't wish Stevie would call or come home. It's so cold out tonight. All he had on was a thin cotton jacket. Please try not to worry. We're doing everything we can. It's going to be all right. Stevie's father's such a sensitive man. He and the boy are so close. I know he's terribly upset. No, you're sure there's no place you might have forgotten? Some place where the boy might be? No, no place. No. Anything happened to the boy, it'll just kill John. No, no. You sit still. I'll get it, Miss Morgan. Joe. Hi, Harry. The Johnstone kid. He's been found. He's home, Sergeant. He's come home. Thank God he's all right. Where's he been? Did he tell you? No. No, he didn't. He, his clothes were all dirty and he's acting strange. I've never seen him like this. How do you mean, Miss Johnson? Well, he just came in the front door and said, Hello, Mom. And then he sat down in a chair and stared at the floor. He won't talk to his father or me. Do you mind if I talk to him? No, go ahead. I asked him about the little Moorheim boy and he wouldn't tell me a thing. Where is he now? In the living room. Looks all right. Yes. Son. Son, this is a police officer. He he wants to talk to you. Now, don't be afraid, dear. He only wants to ask you some questions. Son. You see, Sergeant? Stanley. Come on, look at me, son. Get your head up, youngster. Come on, now that's better. Had your mother pretty worried, you know that? You want to tell us where you've been? I wish you'd try to get him to eat a little something. Do you hear that, son? Want something to eat? Stanley, there's another little boy up the street who hasn't come home. Do you know where he is? His father and mother are worried about him, too. Just like your folks were. You've got to help us find him, son. I... I killed him. I killed Steve with the twenty-two. We were only playing. <laughs> but I killed him. How do you know you killed him? Maybe he's only hurt. Now, isn't that it? <laughs> no, he's dead. I know he's dead. The gun went off. We forgot we put bullets in there. Where is he, Stanley? I hid him. I was scared. I didn't want anybody to find him. Where did you hide him, son? In a cave up on the hill. I didn't mean it. It was my pal. Do you want to show us where, son? Yes, I'll show you. Please don't send me to jail. 9.15 p.m., Thursday, December 22nd. Nine-year-old Stanley Johnstone led the way up the hill behind the backyard of his home. He showed us the wagon he moved the body in. His father came along with us. About 50 feet from the crest of the hill, the boy pointed to a thicket of scrub oak. There we found a small cave holding the body of Stephen Morheim. There was a single bullet wound in his chest just below his heart. He was dead. We covered the body. Stanley. Stanley, how did it happen? I knew my folks were going to give me the gun for Christmas. I knew where it was, and I got it. There was a box of bullets with it. Were you pointing the gun at Stephen? No, sir. No, sir, I wasn't. 
It was Steve's turn to play with it. I was chasing him. He tripped over the stump there in our backyard and fell. The gun hit him in the stomach. And it went off. Why do you think you killed him if you're telling us the truth? I'm telling the truth, honest. That's the truth. All right, I believe you, son. But why do you think you killed him? It was my gun. Steve would still be alive if I didn't go and get it. I should have waited till Christmas. It's all my fault. Where have you been all this time? In the cave with Steve. What were you doing in there, son? I was praying. I was praying for God to make him alive again. After a thorough investigation, Ben and I were convinced that the shooting of Stephen Morheim was accidental. Lieutenant Lee Jones' findings substantiated the Johnstone boy's story even to the smallest detail. We put in a call to the coroner's office and acquainted him with the facts. He designated a local mortuary to handle the body pending autopsy and granted us permission to remove the body to the Morheim home. Mrs. Morheim collapsed. The family doctor was called. Ben and I sat in the living room to wait for John Morheim, the dead boy's father. Edith! Edith! Mr. Morheim? Yes. You the police? Yes, sir. Where's Edith? Where's my wife? Has my boy come home? Have you found him? Yes, sir. Oh, where is he? St- Steve! Stevie! Where's Steve? He's hurt, isn't he? Yes, sir. Oh, where is he? I want to see him. He's hurt bad, Mr. Morheim. Oh, where is he? I want to see him. He's in his room. How bad? Pretty bad. He's... He's dead. All right, if I go in. If you want to. Will you go with me? Sure. Don't make it any harder on yourself, Mr. Morheim. I want to see my boy. <laughs> Mr. Morhan. Stevie, Stevie, Stevie. Listen to me, son. We've got you a lot of nice things for Christmas. Everything you wanted. I, I got you the three new cars for the train. The, the one with the search is really worse. <laughs> Son, you, you... You got that new switch you wanted to it. It's a lot more try. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that new baseball that you saw? Well, I got it for you. <laughs> that cowboy outfit you wanted, I got it too. <laughs> Mr. Morhan. <laughs> Come on, Joe. 
accident. He was playing with Johnstone boy at the street. Playing with a gun. He went off. <gasps> what was the other boy's name? Stanley Johnston. It was an accident. Mr. Morheim, where are you going? I want to see that boy. We had no idea what the dead boy's father had in mind. We didn't feel that we should try to restrain him. We went along with him up the street to the Johnstone home. I'm Stevie's father. Where's your boy? I'm sorry. Where's your boy? He's right here. Won't you come in? It's all right, Mrs. Johnstone. You... You the boy that was with Stevie? Yes, sir. What's your name? Stanley. Stanley. I know it wasn't your fault, Stanley. I wonder if you'd do something for me. Yes, sir. I've got a lot of nice presents for Stevie. I know he'd want you to have them. I want to give them to you. Christmas Eve. Mom? I, I think that would be a fine idea, son. Come on, Ben. Give a kid a gun for Christmas. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 24th, 1948, a coroner's inquest was held in the county morgue, city and county of Los Angeles, state of California. In a moment, the results of that inquest. Now, here are authentic reports from all over the country that tell the story of Fatima's sensational increase in popularity. New York Division. Fatima sales up 132%. Chicago Division. Fatima sales up 453%. Los Angeles Division. Fatima sales up 545%. More and more smokers agree Fatima is the best of all long cigarettes. So enjoy Fatima yourself and give extra mild Fatimas for Christmas in the attractive golden yellow carton. Everyone who smokes Fatima says that this great new long cigarette is the best of all long cigarettes. <laughs> At the coroner's inquest, it was officially recorded that Stephen Morheim's death was the result of an accident. Stanley Johnstone, age nine, was absolved of any legal responsibility for his friend's death. You have just heard Dragnets, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet honors Hennepin County, Minneapolis, state of Minnesota, and the men of the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office, another of America's great law enforcement agencies. One of these men, Sheriff Ed Ryan, 
veteran police officer and department administrator who dedicates his life to making yours more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of all long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, portion transcribed from Los Angeles. Be sure to hear songs by Morton Downey tonight on NBC. Oakland Art Murmur is a coalition of art and cultural venues dedicated to increasing popular awareness of and participation in the arts in Oakland, with an emphasis on visual art. They promote visual art in Oakland through collective marketing and outreach efforts and our monthly First Friday events, which are open to the public and attended by hundreds of local and visiting art enthusiasts. The First Friday Art Walk has grown to include street performances, one-night-only art installations, activists raising money and awareness for local social service organizations, and political initiatives. For more information about the Oakland Art Murmur, go online at www.oaklandartmurmur.com. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. from the Columbia Broadcasting System to drop the cares and worries of the day and come along to the mystical, magical land of make-believe. All right, pretenders, take over. Thank you, Mr. Conover. And gang, before our story begins, we have a little matter to attend to. Which is what, Gwen? Oh, answering a couple of questions. Not about our theme music. Mm -hmm, That's one of them. Miriam, suppose you take over for that one. All right, Gwen. Our musical theme is fairy tales. The composer is Comzak, K-O-M-Z-A-K. And you can order it from your local music dealer. Thank you, Miriam. The next question comes from a number of listeners, and it goes something like this. I have written twice for my story, and you never do it. Why don't you play Bluebeard for me? End quote. Well, we'll take care of that question. I believe I can answer that one, Gwen. All right, the floor is yours, Albert. Well, for about ten years, I've helped Miss Mack take care of all the request letters that come to her desk. In all that time, there has been only one story that parents didn't want their children to hear. And that's Bluebeard. Even though we changed the ending, all the wires were restored, and Bluebeard was the only rascal that stayed dead. There was an occasional letter of criticism. And why spoil a perfect record with one story when we have so many exciting ones to do in place of it? Now, doesn't that make sense? Well, it seems so to me. And thank you, Albert. All right, the question department is closed for today. And now the letter which settled the story for this morning. It says, Dear Magic Makers, I asked my daddy the other day what makes the ocean salty. And he said, Why don't you write to let's pretend? They'll know. So I'm asking you, Do you know why the sea is salty? And if you do... Will you tell me right away? I'm a kind of I've got to know. Well, we know the fairy tale explanation of why the sea is salt. You think that'll do? Oh, I think so. What's more, it's a funny story, so let's do it, huh? 
Now, whose turn is it to say how we'll travel, so let's pretend? I think it's mine. Oh, you do? Well, what makes you think so, Jackie Ayers? On account of I haven't had a turn for years and years. Well, all right, old man. How do we travel? How about a flock of elephants? One for each of us. Hmm, that fellow has big ideas. Elephants suit the rest of you? <laughs> all right, a flock of elephants. One for each of us. And we pay them off in peanuts. Here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> Great for us pretend to why the sea is salt. Hi, Jumbo. Up, King. Let's go. Who's there at this time of night? Come in. It is I, your brother, Richard. And Clara, my wife, is with me. What in time do you want at this late hour? Well, now that you're here, you may as well sit down. Thank you, Richard. Good evening, Mary. Good evening. Oh, the fire feels good. We didn't build a fire today. Well, well, what's on your mind? Why have you come here? Speak up, Jack. It's late. Oh, just the same cordial brother, aren't you? Only relatives would call at this hour of the night. What do you want? Yes, and of course you do want something. Very well, brother. I'll tell you why we came. Although it isn't so easy to do it. Briefly, we're... we're hungry. I thought so. Begging again. Give me this. Give me that. Ah. I wouldn't have had to do this if I'd had my share of our father's estate. You cheated me out of. Jesus! Don't you dare say such a thing to my husband. I dare, all right, Mary. And don't threaten me again, or I shall go to the courts and prove it. Prove it? You can't prove a thing. Oh, quiet, Mary. Well, my poor brother, I'll be generous with you on one condition. I promise it. No matter what it is, we must have food. What do you want? Just this. I'll give you a joint of beef and bread, too. If you'll take it and go to Davy Jones' locker. Mm, how do I get back? That's for you to figure out. Oh, no. It's a trick, Jack. Don't promise him. He knows you can't get back. Never mind, Clara. Don't fret. At least it'll provide for you, dear. And I'd just as soon be in Davy Jones' locker as the way I am. No, Jack, no. Don't promise him that. Please, we'll manage some other way. There is no other way, dear. All right, brother. Give me the joint of beef, and I'll make a trip to this famous locker of Davy Jones. And go to the stone cellar. Get your meat, and then remember your promise. Very well. Goodbye, and best wishes to you, my generous brother. Goodbye. Can you... Will you... Will we what, sir? What is it? Uh, I'm starving. Give me some bread. I hate to ask you, sir, but I have no money and I haven't eaten in a long time. Oh, we know what that is, don't we, Clara? Yes, we do. But we can't go. Oh, him. yes, my dear. Little as we have, we can spare enough bread for this old man. Let's not be like my poor selfish brother. You're right, Jack. Give him some of the beef and the bread, too. Let me help you with it. Uh, heaven bless you, my friends. Perhaps someday I can return this kindness. Well, even now, perhaps. Can you tell me by any chance which way I go to find Davy Jones' locker? Uh, strange. There must indeed, sir, be a fate that rules over us and brings us in touch with those we need and those who need us. Uh, here, here you are, sir. You mean you know the way? Uh, more than that. Listen, you are young and strong. 
You can dive to the bottom of the sea. I think I can do that all right, but what happens when I get there? Well, don't be afraid of the strange little people you will meet. The moment you arrive, let them see the joint of beef you're carrying. They will want it. Oh, I say, must I take that with me? It'll give my wife food for a long time, and if I shouldn't get back... It will mean more to you there. Let the sea gnomes bid for it. But in payment, take only one thing. The little hand mill they have. They won't want to, but they'll want the meat so badly that they finally will yield. So hold your bargain. And when you come up, I'll be waiting on the shore to show you how to use it. It's worth the trip. Mark my word. I believe you. All right, Clara. Suppose you go home and wait for me there. I'll be back as soon as I can. If I get back at all. All right, my dear. I suppose you know what's best. If he doesn't, I do. Trust me, madam. Both of you have been generous with me, and now I'll help you. Wish me luck. Goodbye. Goodbye, Jack. Good luck. I'll be waiting for you. Come along, my friend. Your adventure begins. Well, I suppose this is as good a place to dive as any, so... Here I go. the sunken treasures. Am I right? Come, come, fellas. You can't scare me. I just want to pay my respects, and then I'll take my joint of meat and go back home. Meat? What kind? Oh, it's a joint of beef. Real juicy, too. As a matter of fact, it's one of the best I ever tasted. For the meat. But could you all the wealth of the state for that joint of beef? What do you say? No, I I don't think I'll sell it. It's too juicy. I'll take it back home. Oh, we haven't tasted any fresh meat in years. Name your price, fellow. Yes, you must. We'll give you anything you say. Well, I, I couldn't sell it, but maybe I'd trade it in exchange for oh, well, for that little old handmill you have hidden there. No, no, not the handmill. Anything but that. The handmill belongs here. Gold, diamonds, rubies, but not the handmill. No, we won't give that up. No, sir. Very well, then. That's really the only thing I want, so I'll take the beef and go home and make a juicy stew for my dinner. Goodbye. Here's your beef. Oh, wait, 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 wait
so I take one deep breath and wish me luck for up I go. Make it all right. Hello, old friend. Just a minute till I get up on the bank. Here, here you are. Oh. Oh. Good to be up on the land again. Did you get the hand mill? Did you? Oh, yes, here it is. Maybe you're right, but it doesn't look like it's worth trading a whole joint of beef for. <laughs> so you think. You don't know what I know about it. Listen to me, fellow. This hand mill is magic. Magic? How? When? What? <laughs> it's worth all the beef in the kingdom. Now listen to me carefully. When you get home, set the mill on the table. Then tell it what you want, no matter what it may be. And after you've made your wish, say to it, Turn, little wheel, grind out my command. Stop when I say, Tabber go, tabber again. You mean to say that it anything is I... Try it. Take it home and try it. Oh, many thanks, my friend. If it works, you've made me wealthy, and I'll never cease being grateful. I hope you'll come over and have dinner with us sometime. Uh, thank you. Uh, good night. Uh, wait a minute. The most important thing of all is not to forget the way to stop it. Uh, will you remember? Uh, you bet I will. Stop when I say, Tabber go, Tabber gan. <laughs> That's the trick. Good night. <laughs> You're back safely. Did you get the hand mill? I did, my love, and here it is. Oh, Jack. What? Why, that's nothing. How could you trade the meat for that? Oh, wait. Let's play a game. Now, what would you like to have right now? Think carefully. What is your wish, Your Highness? <laughs> <laughs> this is a silly game. But all right, I'll play it. Uh, I think I'd like to have some roast beef and brown potatoes to go with it. All right, roast beef and potatoes. Turn, little wheel. Grind out my command. Oh, Jack. Look. Look. Oh, joy to Look, another. And, and potatoes. And, and more. Oh, catch them, Jack. Oh, oh, stop it. Stop it, Jack. Stop, stop when I say tabber go, tabber gan. <laughs> well. Oh, Jack, how wonderful, how perfectly wonderful. Oh, Clara, we've got something. Now, how about new clothes, Clara, and all new furniture for the house? We need them. Oh, yes, we do, but will it do that, Jack? Will it really? Let's see. New clothes. Beautiful new clothes for us both, little Mills. And furniture, and all new and beautiful, too. Now, hold your breath, Clara. Oh, Jack. Turn, little wheel. Grind out my command. <laughs> Jack, look. Oh, how lovely. There's your new dress, Clara. Velvet, no less. Oh, and here's my new outfit. Oh. New shoes for you oh. and mine. Now, how about the furniture, little mill? Let's go slowly. Who's there? Inside, Jack. Mary and I. Richard. 
Whatever has happened? Oh, uh, come in. Well, brother, this is a surprise. I just came over to see that you kept your promise and what... What's this? Money? Look, the room is filled with it. It's all over the floor. <laughs> and look at the new clothes. Both of them have. And furniture. What's the meaning of this, Jack? Well, wouldn't you like to know? Clara, tell us. A sudden well. That's for Jack to say. If he cares to tell you, it's all right with me. Two hours ago, you were hungry. Begging for bread at my house. Clothes, new furniture, and gold all over the floor. What have you been up to? You sent me to Davy Jones' locker, Brother Richard, and I went. I have you to thank for all of this. For what? What did you find there? Yes, tell us. Are you sure you don't mind, Clara? No, Jack, go ahead. Well, I have a hand mill now that works for me. I'm through with worries and work forever. I don't understand this. I don't understand it at all. A hand mill? Explain yourself. I'll do more. You just tell me something you'd like to have. And if you and Mary will leave us one minute, I promise you it'll be here. Uh, I don't believe it. Very well, what do you want, Mary? Oh, it sounds very silly to me, so I'll wish for something equally silly. I've always wanted a parrot. And not that I believe for one minute you can do this. But that's what I wish for. That's certainly silly enough. And if it works and you've wasted a wish on a fool parrot, I don't know what I'll do to you. It won't work and you won't do anything to me either. You take Mary and go into the kitchen until I call you. Well, this foolishness take long? Only a moment. All right. Come on, Mary. Why did you send them out, Jack? I don't want them to see how it's done. Oh, she wants a parrot, eh? All right. Turn, little wheel. Grind out my command. Who's here? <laughs> Hello. Oh, really now, Jack, it is. Stop what I say. Tap her, go, tap again. It is indeed. Now call him in. Call him in. Mary, Richard, here's your parrot, and he's very pretty. Well, I guess it didn't work this time, did it? See for yourself and listen to him. Hi there. Hey, Scott. You said it. When do we eat? He did work. What? This is magic. Uh, oh, is there a cracker in the house? <laughs> what do you want for the handbag? I'll pay you any price you want. Oh, don't sell it, Jack, please. Oh, wait, Clara. Well, now, let me see. Uh, $5,000, and you can come for the mill on Sunday when the chimes ring out for first services. Uh, that's a high price. But very well, it's a bargain. Now come, Mary, it's very late. That's a great deal of money for you two to have. However, perhaps it's worth it. We'll be here on Sunday. Oh, uh, what's uh, cooking? Give me my parrot. Oh, give me a crack. I'm crack. <laughs> Come on, Mary. Good night to you. <laughs> oh, Jack, aren't they furious? But why did you do that? Why did you agree to give up the hand mill? Because in a week's time, we can get everything on earth we want out of it. Besides, I'm not through with this unhappy brother of mine yet. He needs to be taught a great deal about fair dealing and honesty. And a little bit of brotherly love would help, too. Well, I guess you know what you're doing, Jack. I'll say no more. Just wait and see the fun on Sunday. Confound him. Think of that idiot having all that money. He took a great deal of my fortune, but it's worth it. Of course it is. I just didn't want them to raise the price. 
What shall we wish for first? Are you sure you know how to work it? Certainly I do. Then go ahead. What do you want? I'd like some good food for a change. You don't ever seem to learn how to cook. Oh, is that so? Well, no one else ever found fault with it. And any time you don't oh, like stop it, stop you... arguing. Let's try the handmill. I wish for some good herring and some broth to go with it. Come on, little wheel. Turn and grind out my command. They look a whole platter of them. Richard! Ah, that's more like herring ought to look. Ah, now that's enough herring. Now we'll have the broth, little wheel. Fine. Fill another bowl. We want plenty of it. That's it. Now, now that's enough. Hey, that's enough. Stop it, Richard. It's running over on the floor. Make it stop, I say. That's enough, you fool. Mary, get the mop. Get the bucket. Get the tub. Hey! It's all over the floor. Stop it. It's flooding the place. Make it stop. I can't stop it. It won't stop the fool. Stop it, I say. Catch the table. It's falling away. Make this blast of thing stop. It's up to the window, Jill. Get your brother. Come on. Yes, my brother. Let's find him. Stop that fool mill. What happened? I wish for broth. It started and won't stop. The furniture is floating away. The broth is running in a stream down the hill after us. <laughs> there are herrings all over the place. <laughs> you make it stop. All right, I'll stop it, but it'll cost you another $5,000. And besides, I take the mill no, back. I, I won't pay it. It's a holdup. I won't pay it. All right, then your lands will swim in herring oh, broth. Oh, yes, pay it. It'll ruin everything. Oh, all right, I'll pay only stop it and come and take the thing away. All right, I'm off to get the hand mill, and don't worry, it's stopped now. Clara, I told you we'd have some fun. Captain Howard, you look very glum. Something wrong? Most assuredly, Lady Violet. Oh, I'm sorry. It's such a beautiful day. Why, the sea is like blue glass. What a lovely trip so far. What's happened? Oh, those tourists that came on the boat, they made fun of me. I think that's very unkind, Captain Howard. You know, I can talk to some people like you and not stutter at all. Yes, I'm sure you can. You know, Lady Violet, there are some words I just can't seem to say. Well, I shouldn't worry about it, Captain. You can say plenty of others. Yeah. And I, for one, can understand you perfectly. Well, the, the, that's one of them. Well, Captain. Yes, Lady Violet? What harbor is this that the boat is coming into? Uh, this is Latovia, Lady Violet. Oh, isn't this where that famous man lives who's so very wealthy? I think his name is Sir Jack. Uh, the, the one who lives in the ha, 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 house of gold? Yes, the one who has a magic machine of some kind that turns out all his wealth. Yes, he lives here. You see, there's the castle of gold. Uh-huh. You can see the flashing from the ship mm. to the left there. You see, see the tower? Yes. 
Uh, solid rubies and uh, diamonds. Uh, pretty good. <laughs> Grand, huh? Uh, Captain, do you think we might visit the castle and see its wonderful things? You said you were taking a party ashore today. Could you arrange a visit there and let us see it? Well, maybe we could, Lady Violet. Oh, I'd like that. Let's try. Come on. Very well, my lady. Your wish is my, my pleasure. <laughs> Come along. Splendid castle, Madam Clara. Oh, not at all. We welcome people from across the seas, and I've enjoyed hearing your exciting adventures. And so, Jack, you've been most kind and courteous, and we appreciate oh, it. Not at all, Lady Violet. Uh, Captain, uh, what cargo have you in your ship? Uh, uh, salt, Sir Jack. Year in and year out, I haul salt. B back and forth, across the seas. Oh, I'm just sick of it. I'd like to settle down in one place for a while. Well, now, here's a proposition. Huh? I like you, Captain, and I'll make a bargain with you. Why not buy my magic mill from me? I have all I want, and you're an old fellow. I'd like to see you enjoy life. I'll sell it to you. And then you can stay ashore if you like and still supply your firm with all the salt they can use. What do you say? Uh, I'd like that just fine, Jack. What'll you take? Make the price reasonable, Jack. After all, we really have all we can ever need. All right, dear. Well, Captain, from you, five dollars and your goodwill. Well, that's certainly fine of you, Jack. That's well, I, I can't say it, but, but you know what I mean. Oh, yes. And come with me and I'll explain it to you and tell you just what to do to make it work. And uh, most important, make it stop. This is fine of you two kind people. It's your lucky day, Captain Howard. <laughs> hey, excuse me, Lady Violet. I'll, I'll, I'll be right back. Come along, Captain, and meet the famous hand mill. <laughs> Not you, Lady Violet. I'd like to have you stay. Certainly, Captain. Everybody else below. below. There's no reason why I shouldn't try the handmill now. You, you already know about it, and there's no need to wait until I get home. I shall be thrilled to stay and watch, Captain. Uh, all right. Uh, here's the mill. If I fill my boat with salt now, then we won't have any work to do at the end of the, the, the voyage. Uh, that, that, that's just what I'll do. Uh, I, I want salt. Now, turn little wheel and g g grind out my, 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 my command. Oh, it works. Well, Captain, look, isn't that amazing? I, uh, See how the salt falls out. Uh, look. So it does. That's wonderful. <laughs> the, oh, what's the rest of what I say? Oh, I don't know, but, but the deck is pretty well covered with salt. You'd better stop it. Well, that's what I want to do. Well, hurry up. The salt is pouring out. Quickly, Captain, quickly. Turn the wheel. Grind out my command. Oh. Oh. Oh, stop. 
Aye, Sister Esther. Captain, don't wish for more. Oh. Stop it. The boat is listing to one side. Make it stop. Oh, I, 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 I can't remember how. Oh. Ah, it's in the boat. We must be shipping water, sir. She's listing badly. Remember, remember. Man, no life boat. Aye, aye, sir. Uh, stop when I say. What did you say, sir? I, I wasn't talking to you. Man, man, the boat. Where's all this salt coming from? We're listing badly. Well, I, 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 salt bath is broken or something, sir. The ship is filled with salt. Oh, oh. Captain, the ship is sinking. I don't think, Captain, pick up the end of the command. The ship is sinking, sir. Stop when I say. Don't get to the boat. Never mind me. Get to the boat. It's that mill, sir. It's grinding out salt by the ton. Stop it. That's what I'm trying to do. Stop it. Stop it. No use. I can't, can't, can't think of the word. Stop when I say. Lady Violet, quickly. The life. Go. Stand by, men. Hey, give me your hand, Lady Violet. Into the light. Grind out. Ready now. Where's the mill, Captain? I die, die. I, I, I don't know. There it is, sir. See, it's sinking to the bottom. Oh, oh. Yes, I see it. It's still grinding out salt. It'll make the whole sea salty. Make it stop, Captain. Turn around with the wheel. Grind out my command. Grind out my command. Stop when I say. Stop when I say. 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 Oh. Oh. Skip it. the sea is salt. And another episode of Let's Pretend comes to an end. Was this your favorite story? If not, write to Let's Pretend in care of this station, and we'll try to make your favorite come true. And to those of you who have written before for passes to see the broadcast, please be patient. We're taking care of them just as fast as time and the studio capacity permit. The cast for today included... Gwen Davies. Jack. Kingsley Colton. His wife, Clara. Miriam Wolfe. His brother, Richard. Albert Alley. The wife, Mary. Sybil Trent. The old man. Arthur Anderson. The chief gnome. Skippy Holmeyer. The second gnome. Jackie Ayer. The stuttering captain. Jack Ryan. The first mate. Bob Court. Lady Violet. Daisy Alden. And studio technician for Let's Pretend, Harry Birch. These stories are dramatized by Nyla Mack. Furry Friends Rescue is an all-volunteer, non-profit companion animal rescue organization for San Francisco Bay Area. FFR rescues dogs and cats of all ages, from bottle babies to seniors, and special medical needs from animal shelters. And home fosters over 120 dogs and cats year-round until they're adopted. FFR saves about 1,000 animals per year. We assist 70 animal shelters and other rescues via our website. Since November 1998, we have helped save over 12,000 dogs and cats. Please visit our website for more information at www.furryfriendsrescue.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio.
E me 